Oh, hi. It's me, David Robertson. And it's me, Chris Cotter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. Welcome back. Welcome back indeed. Still in the wash bar, but hopefully this is our last week whilst we're on strike. Or rather, David is formally on strike and I am um, pretending to be. (laughs) We are both fully supportive of the strike, at least. Absolutely. Uh, This week's uh, podcast that I recorded with um, Tim Stacey, at the time we recorded it, his book hadn't quite come out, but it is out now with Routledge, and the book's called Myth and Solidarity in the Modern World Beyond Religious and Political Division. I'm not going to say too much about it now, you'll hear about it in the interview, but uh, it's great speaking with Tim, and uh, thanks so much to his pals in Reading uh, who hosted the interview, it was greatly appreciated, but now over to me and Tim Stacey. So welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. Um, It's the start of 2018 as I am recording, although who knows when this is actually going to go out because we've got such a backlog. I am here in Reading um, on my way to Oxford and I'm joined by Dr. Tim Stacey. Hi, Tim. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Um, Tim... Um, is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Ottawa, um, but uh, has been in the UK um, for the festive periods. And <laughs> um, our, our diaries and our travel schedules managed to um, collide nicely. Um, we'll be hearing about Tim's research during the course of the interview, but um, the primary trigger for the interview is the publication, forthcoming publication of his first monograph. Um, with Routledge um, later this year that's called Myth and Solidarity in the Modern World Beyond Religious and Political Division. And uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about um, those notions of myth and solidarity, but also this key concept of post-liberalism. Um, so first of all, I, I've given a very brief introduction to you, Tim, but tell us, who are you? Uh, how, have you how have you got here? <laughs> How have I? How have you got here? Why are you speaking to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, I, I started off. I did my masters uh, at Nottingham in uh, in theology, and uh, it was there as I was listening to some really interesting uh, arguments about virtue ethics, primarily from people like Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor. Uh, that I felt very inspired by the stuff they were saying, but also as an atheist myself, I kept asking, how do I actually make this relevant to me, somebody who's not actually a Christian? Mm. Uh, and that was what triggered me moving from theology into social scientific research. Uh, and so that triggered the PhD, which was about exploring uh, possibilities for virtue ethics uh, and notions of transcendence in a religiously plural society. Uh, and more recently, the interest has uh, turned to secular subjects. So that's what I'm now in Vancouver exploring. What are the uh, potentials for transcendence and solidarity uh, amongst secu- secular subjects? Fantastic. And we'll be hearing more about that as this conversation ensues. Um, so set the scene for us then. Um, you, 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 the, the first couple of chapters of this book particularly are... are exploring this notion of post-liberalism. Um, but 
I don't know that many of our listeners will necessarily know what on earth that means. So perhaps <laughs> you could, t- you know, the, um, just for the for the sake, we know that we're in turbulent political times. There's sort of uh, re- reactionary politics happening all over the place. We've got these notions that there's the political elites versus the ordinary masses and everything. So maybe just take us through a, a chronological, um, you know, how have we got to this this state? What is liberalism, and then what is post liberalism? Yeah, so, well, basically the, the basic premise of the book is, is to follow this post-liberal argument. And, and the primary argument there is that uh, in a liberal secular society, we've lost uh, a sense of the role of transcendence in forming social identity. Uh, so instead, we treat people as basically both ideally and also primarily uh, motivated by rationality. And I suggest that we also tend to castigate those who appear to be irrational, um, whether that's because of religion, ideology, parochialism, or simply a lack of education. And I think that comes up during the Brexit debate a lot mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the result, according to post-liberals, is twofold. First, politics becomes technocratic and economics becomes instrumental. So for them, politics is less about building belonging and empowering people than it is about a university-educated elite uh, delivering to social scientifically construed needs. Mm. Um, and then economics is less about reciprocity than it is about GDP. And then second, and because of this, we increasingly see people retrenching in uh, communities that they feel provide them with a sense of belonging and empowerment, uh, communities of faith, race, nation, economic status. But then kind of the what inspired this book for me was that although post-liberalism gives this, for me, a really exciting analysis of our our current uh, political problems, uh, post-liberalism itself is as much a symptom of that as it is an analysis, uh, by which I mean that it represents a retrenching in Christian notions of transcendence. Um, and that simply doesn't work for a society that is simultaneously, as I put it in the book, post-Christian, post-secular and religiously plural. Mm-hmm. So that very long premise is actually the basis of this exploration, uh, which is namely to explore the relevance and role of transcendence in developing solidarity in the messy religious and non-religious landscape that we see before us, uh, primarily in the Western world. And I explored this by undertaking two years of ethnographic research with groups seeking to develop solidarity in London, which I kind of identify as one of the most socially and economically liberal cities in the world, as well as being one of the most religiously and non-religiously diverse cities in the world. So, (laughs) despite all that complexity, the actual answers the book provides, I feel, are quite simple. Uh, First, it says that despite the assumptions of liberal secularism and the dominance of this system within London for almost 300 years, the majority of people, both religious and non-religious, still do draw on transcendence in forming their social identity. In particular, and this is where I get to the notion of myth, they do this through myths, uh, and that's what I call stories of great events and characters that exemplify people's ideals. Uh, and so while for Christians that might be like uh, the story of Christ or of the Great Flood, 
uh, for atheists, that might be about sometimes Gandhi or Martin Luther King uh, figures who actually have some sort of religious background yeah, themselves, yeah. Uh, but also just stories of their mum or their dad or their best friend or a great heroic colleague that for them exemplified a virtuous way of living. Mm-hmm. So, and then the second point is that, again, despite the assumptions of secular liberalism, Actually, the role of the state doesn't need to be this kind of principal distance from religion or principal distance from ideology. Instead, we can actually imagine the role of the state less as an enforcer of a particular ideology or else, perhaps in a liberal society, an enforcer of a lack of ideology. And instead, we can think about it as a kind of curator of the sharing of different ideologies Uh, So that people can explore uh, the virtues inherent in very different ways of living and see that, you know, for instance, uh, I might be somebody who is quite critical of Islam, but then I spend time uh, trying to develop solidarity in a local setting with a Muslim. And it's something as simple as just seeing that they are good people Mm -hmm. makes you realize, oh, well, maybe Islam's not so bad either. And then I began to see uh, some really interesting processes of bricolage, like uh, out-and-out atheists talking about how they were inspired by the story of Muhammad. And they would even talk about him as the first community organizer, for instance. Um, So I found that really interesting. And then I get onto this idea of uh, solidarity centers. So it's actually the notion that the state will create these deliberate spaces in which people of very different backgrounds come together to intentionally explore uh, their ideas of how the world should be and then acting on that together. Like, okay, this is how the world should be. Uh, what are some policies or, or things going on in our community that are stopping that from happening? Um, and that might be something like low wages, high house prices or whatever, and then working together to, to solve those problems. Excellent. Well, thanks for that. Um, this fantastic introduction to the topic and indeed overview of the book. Um, and I, I, it really resonates with me. I, I can remember sitting with, um, you know, there is this really common idea, particularly in the UK, that oh, politics and, and religion, for example, don't go together. You know, what was it? Um, Alistair Campbell, you know, we, we don't do God. Yeah, right. And I can remember... Um, last semester at Edinburgh, um, in a, in a course on religion in modern Britain, sitting with my students in a tutorial. And they were talking about, you know, whether a, a Muslim politician should be expected to act as a Muslim or, or to represent their constituents. Mm. Um, and they all seemed to think this was, you know, that they shouldn't be bringing religion into it at all. And I tried to push and push, but what other normative ways do we allow politicians to act? And they were like, uh, 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 gender, uh, race, um, political party, right? You know, yeah. we have this conceit that they, they represent mm. their whole constituency, but they also have the sacred ideals of their political party that they hold higher than everything else. At the same Absolutely. Time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just a little riff, but, um, going right back to the beginning then. So it was sort of, um, in the book you talk about it was maybe 2011 when, when your research process was starting. And so like, how did you, how did you 
get into this massive area of research and, and, and what pushed you? Well, yeah, it's actually an incredibly strange and exciting uh, journey for me. So going back to Nottingham, right, um, I don't know how well you know that university, but we'd have a lot of um, theological seminars in these in the staff club lounge around leather armchairs. And that was my introduction to academia, talking about Alistair McIntyre and virtue ethics and John Milbank and these radical critiques of, of modernity. Uh, and I was very excited by them. But as I said, I was troubled and I wanted to work out, okay, is this relevant? And I thought mm. social science was the best way of working that out. But I was a theologian. So I arrive in London and my supervisor, Adam Dinham, starts talking to me about this thing called data. <laughs> you need to go out and get data. And I thought, hmm, what is data exactly? And I spent a lot of time reading different kind of uh, sort of research methods books mm -hmm. and trying to understand exactly how I was going to explore this question of uh, the link between transcendence and solidarity in a religiously plural society. But then while that was happening, and this is a bit weird now, it kind of matches with the personal, is that um, I've grown up all around the world and I've never had any particular home. So when I was living in London for the first time being in a place for more than a few years, I was thinking very hard to myself about what does it mean to be a part of my local community. And as I was simultaneously thinking about those two things, on the one hand, data, and on the other, my own desire to be involved in a community, uh, the London riots happened. Mm. And I thought, you know what, this is amazing. This is a great opportunity for me to be involved in the process of rebuilding uh, Tottenham, which is sort of where I was living, um, in response to this. So I came across this group called London Citizens, who wanted to do a citizens inquiry into the Tottenham riots. Uh, they basically do these things called listening campaigns, where they go out and basically ask members of the public, what is the main problem that you and your family face? That's the first question. Then the second question is always, what can you and us, what can we together do about this? Hmm. So it's not like, okay, what are your problems? And shall we write to the local politician and tell them about it? It's mm. let's do something together. Let's take direct action. And it just suddenly clicked in my head. I, I, I was thinking about this word solidarity so theoretically. And then here were some people actually living it out, developing solidarity in a very real way in my local area. And my first thought really when that happened was to say to myself, why am I even bothering to study this? I should just be doing yep. it. I, I might as well just quit the PhD. Then it occurred to me that actually taking action in this way could be my data. And I'd been reading stuff about post-secularity. And I realized, okay, London Systems really is a kind of post-secular group. They're, they're a group that recognizes the important role of religion in the public sphere. They themselves are somewhat inspired by a faith narrative, but the majority of their key organizers uh, were non-religious. Mm. And so 
the way that they were able to so openly navigate um, faith and non-faith and bring people together was really exciting to me. And then I thought, you know what? The best way to explore the possibility for solidarity in this society that's simultaneously Christian, secular and post-secular is to work with a group that indicatively represents each one of those paradigms. So then I started thinking, okay, what are the key post-war paradigms for developing a sense of solidarity? And you have initially the um, very strong connection between Christianity and the setting up of the welfare welfare state. state. So I took one group that I felt represented that, which was at the time called the Christian Socialist Movement, but now it's called Christians on the Left. Mm -hmm. Then I thought the next phase was... uh, secular ways of doing this uh, and in particular a lot of money uh, being pumped into councils for voluntary service so I started working with them as representing my secular organization then in the 90s uh, and early 2000s you had the multi-faith policy paradigm so I thought okay I need a group that represents that and then going back to the start London Citizens became my post-secular organization and uh, that's the story of how I got there. Excellent. And um, on, on the notion of post-secular um, listeners, do check out our previous interview with uh, with, with Kevin Gray um, about that. I mean, I think you would probably agree with me as well, uh, Tim, that it's a problematic notion, is that concept of post-secular. Absolutely. And indeed, my current supervisor, Laurie Beeman, insists that I stop using it. So. <laughs> well, we're, it's here to stay, perhaps. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And and you you organize the book then along these, you've got these sort of three sections really i guess sort of uh, looking at pl- pluralistic contexts and then the the state uh, and th- these organizations and then also capitalism mm. um and i i, I don't, any of those would be interesting to to expand upon but um perhaps let's think about this the place of this n- notion of myth and transcendence mm. and then maybe um sort of weave in these, these sort of three strands. Hmm. Um, so um, basically one of your arguments is that um, these organizations all have varying uh, relationships with the idea of transcendence and mm-hmm. the construction of myth. So maybe you could just, you've introduced the organizations there to so tell us about them and their relationship to the Yeah, the okay. Mythical. So, I mean, the word myth I primarily introduced, and I don't know how helpful it, it really is, was 
what I was ultimately critiquing there was the sort of have a massive notion that we are primarily motivated rationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and by introducing the term myth, I was trying to demonstrate the parity between non-religious and religious ways of relating to mm-hmm. the world. Uh, so in doing that, I then felt that I was able by cutting through this kind of religious secular binary, I was then able to start thinking about the role of the state as something very different mm-hmm. as, as not something that has to separate out religion from politics, but instead can relate more reflexively towards the notion of, of myth. Mm. Um, yes. Throughout you use this phrase, um, religious slash secular, mythic slash rational binary yeah um, that's that's your thing so yeah what what's what's going on there yeah so what i'm trying to say basically is that we end up having this uh notion that the religious is primarily mythic and the secular is primarily rational and what i was trying to say is that both the religious and secular have very strong mythic elements to them mm-hmm. uh Primarily, I was not doing that as a means of, there's a lot of research, right, trying to demonstrate that um, religious belief can, in fact, be far more rational than we realize. Mm -hmm. I was actually trying to go the other way around and say secularity can be a lot more mythic than we realize. And I wasn't doing that in any way to put down uh, secular people or secularity. But rather to say, well, if we are primarily motivated through myth, then we're really missing a trick in how we motivate secular people. Hmm. Uh, if we simply assume that they're motivated by rationality alone, then it becomes, uh, then we miss out on one of the most powerful ways of making people act in the world. Hmm. And then you get back to the whole argument about, um, Brexit and Trump and so on, which is basically that if we forget the role of mythic narrative in motivating people, then they become very vulnerable to just anyone who's mm. able to spin a good myth. Yeah. And all you end up talking about is, is economics and security, as, as, as you argue. Um, could you give an example maybe of, of the kind of, so we can, we can all think of, uh, I guess, a sort of religion related myth. Perhaps, but but what uh, what sort of I guess, for want of a better word, secular myths are, are people um, motivated by? Well, one of those myths is actually the notion of the uh, self-independent rational actor itself, yeah. right? Because that that is a story that people are living by primarily. It's not actually this. In some sense, there's this kind of sub- subtraction narrative to the understanding of secular identity that says it's an identity that is shorn of religious elements. Mm. But instead, what I'm trying to suggest is that uh, secular people do live by myths and rationality itself is one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, for instance, is that of um, capitalism. The idea that says that people are primarily motivated by financial incentive for instance. So basically what the research begins to suggest is that there are clear secular myths. 
but these are primarily ones I feel that aren't intentionally constructed yeah. by secular people. Uh, so they might be myths of rationality or myths of capitalism. And what I'm trying to explore now is, okay, but what are those deep, more intentionally constructed secular myths that can challenge a purely instrumental notion hmm. of politics or economics? In Vancouver, it's really interesting because that's coming from a lot of different places. So there's myths of earth-based spirituality, um, the sense that I as a person am intimately related to the world in the same way. I mean, there, this stuff wouldn't necessarily work in London at all, but it, it's very much derived from indigenous uh, mythology mm -hmm. as well so that people don't see themselves as any more important than the orca in the Pacific Ocean, for instance, or or as the salmon. Uh, and so those myths, the telling of the stories of um, the orca and the salmon, actually become really important ways of challenge, challenging an instrumental approach to, to the land and the environment. Mm. So you have uh, otherwise entirely secular people arguing against the construction of a pipeline, for instance, because of the salmon. And at first, I, I have to say, I actually giggled a bit when I started getting these findings because it was just so out of context hmm. for, for what I'd grown up around in London and from what had come out of my previous research. But as I've, as I've been doing this ethnographic research there, and it's always, as in this book, very auto-ethnographic as well. I try and really immerse myself in the stories of the people I'm studying. And yeah, now I've come to be inspired by these stories of, of whales and salmon and, and, yeah. and how they might be uh, transformative and challenging mm. um, a particular idea of, say, growth. Yeah. And I imagine one could also, you know, even just thinking of the sort of things that you encounter in the Marvel films, or there's there's a lot of myth in in popular culture as well that you probably quite easily and interestingly um, excavate. Absolutely, and people really do integrate that into their stories. I mean, it, it's absolutely not out of place that people will talk to me about uh, a Batman film or yeah. something when they're trying to explain their belief in. Um, I mean, one that actually comes up quite a lot is in, in Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. And it, it seems almost uh, uh, laughable in a way. But I think the way that people suspend their disbelief in a cinema can be very similar to the way they might do it in a church. Mm. And those myths really do have power for people. Mm. So um, we're already almost um, at the end of our time, which is excellent. Um, it, I mean, not excellent, but I'm just mean. Um, we've already covered a lot of ground. Um, so just to, to, to push on this, so you're, one of the key arguments I would see from your book is that rather than perhaps trying to find you know, sitting people down and going, okay, you, you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're an atheist, you're Buddhist. Um, uh, you're never going to agree on these things. Um, so it, it's all pointless. Like it is the idea that, um, everyone is 
sort of constructing myths of, I, I don't know, the sort of the, the better society, the, the greater good, the way they want things to progress. And that, that by focusing upon those rather than maybe the specifics, it might be a more constructive way forward or. Yeah, that's true. But, um, also there's a very real sense, I think, in which those settings need to be intentionally constructed in, mm. in secular societies. That's part of where my critique comes from. So if you look at my, analysis of um hackney cvs for instance mm. i was suggesting that people had the secular people there had strong myths based on um their parents who might be their heroes or their colleagues so their myths in fact were just telling the stories of their friends and family and they were really inspiring and transformative for them but what i noticed what there were there were a lack of intentional uh, rituals within that organization for bringing those to the surface. Mm. And so they fail to really integrate them in their practice and therefore fail to inspire much enthusiasm. Um, and so my feeling is that we need to actually deliberately create spaces where people can discuss these things. And so my example when you talk about, uh, yeah, bringing Muslims and Jews and atheists together in a room, uh, the best example I came across is London citizens. They would ask this very simple question. We live in the world as it is, but there is a world as it should be. Please tell me some words that you associate with the world as it should be. Mm. So that's the first step that you get people of these very different backgrounds together, recognizing in a room, oh, wow, that guy looks very different to me. But in fact, he seems to want the same idea of the perfect world that I want. So that's the first step. But then once you've done that, you actually encourage people to draw on their own very different idiosyncratic uh, stories. So... Mm. Once they will recognize that this is the world as it should be, then they can again start talking about um, their particular myths, whether of Islam, of Christianity, or the more secular ones, such as of um, a socialist utopia or of um, of their dad. Yeah. Um, and I've always found it, and, and I remember Craig Martin made this uh, Point in his, his masking hegemony in 2010. I've always found it very strange that, yeah, why would you expect people to be able to bracket off these aspects of their identity? Why not, you know, like we, we have this myth of the secular as a space where people enter and they bracket off. Mm. But why not just everyone talk about it, talk about your myths and talk about where you're coming from and then we can maybe move forward rather yeah. than. And there's two things though as well, because it's actually a much more honest way of being. It's mm. like, if I understand where you're coming from, then I can also hold you to account on the basis of that story that you're yep. telling. Um, yeah. Just um, to indulge um, my curiosity here, listeners, this might go on slightly longer than usual. I've got three more questions I okay. want to ask Tim. I'll try and be brief in my answers. No, it's good. First, um, the notion of the sacred mm. here. Um, so I know Gordon Lynch, um, we, in fact, we spoke to Gordon Lynch a number of years ago about this concept and um, Kim Knott and others have, have developed this notion of like the secular sacred and things. So, so where does the role of the sacred 
maybe a sort of non-ontological, non-religion-inflected sacred fit into these myths and to, to, into solidarity? Well, for one thing, I totally would have been happy to use the term sacred, but I had two issues uh, with that. One was that um, there's a lot of talk around it being non-negotiable, mm-hmm. and I thought that's exactly what I want to avoid with transcendence, because the very point is that we need people to negotiate. Um, The other issue is I felt that a lot of that research was around what's already sacred. Uh, It would be around pointing out that some certain category had become a sacred one. Whereas I, I was trying to, rather than move backwards in that way, move forwards. So I got into discussions with people doing research around that, including Gordon Lynch, and saying, well, actually, what I'm thinking about is how do we develop a new sacred? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel like people were all that interested in that, in mm-hmm. those circles. And and in that sense alone, I just, that word became tainted to me, and I, I wanted to try and think about it slightly differently. Mm. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it is very... Very similar. Yeah, yeah, they're related. You, know, you can see clear overlaps, but clearly, again, you're you're stepping out into uncharted territory. On that note, then, um, here at the Religious Studies Project, um, um, our our sort of approach would probably map more onto sort of the critical study of religion. Intent we tend to when when normativity comes up, yeah. bristle a little bit. Um, so how, um, you, you, in this book, and as we've even been hearing there, you know, you, you're, you're in, you're an engaged scholar. Um, so how, how, how do you personally navigate that sort of, um, I'm doing this work, which is, I guess, objective, but also trying to, to, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is I have no qualms about saying that I, um, personally and academically fighting for a world in which there's more solidarity, uh, in which people are willing to do things for one another without necessarily expecting something in return. Uh, I'm also quite happy to say that I was saddened by the rise of neoliberalism and I saw that Christianity was very instrumental to the setting up of the welfare state initially and I was asking myself that question, what is that new meta-narrative going to be around which we can form, um, uh, create more solidarity and, and, and renew interest in, in, in social welfare? Um, but the research itself is objective in the sense that I'm totally open to what the answers that may be. Mm. Uh and that's constantly evolving. And I think in my current research, I would slightly challenge some of the assumptions I had in the previous. Um, but it's all this objective social t- scientific critical research that interested me in religion in the first place, because I'm only interested in religion incidentally, because a lot of research seems to be demonstrating that something like religion or the sacred or whatever you want to call it, mm has a powerful effect on a sense of solidarity. So for me, that that's my only very incidental interest in religion is, okay, if that's true, 
then what does that look like in a society where we're none of us believe the same things anymore? Mm. And my final question was going to be, well, what was the um, broader relevance of this to the academic study of religion? But I think um, that you've just actually summarized that quite neatly in your final statement there. Um, unless you want to, to have a final push. Well, the only thing I would say without wanting to be preachy is that I think there is a real danger that we can get stuck behind this social scientific lens that says I'm not allowed to be normative. Mm. When in reality, we have to recognize the very things we choose to research are guided by our own normative principles. So I think in the dangerous world we currently live in, it's time for academics to step up and say, you know, this is what I believe in and I'm willing to work towards bringing it about. Exactly. And um, in your own work as well, what we're doing is not proposing a definitive, this is the objective reality. You know, it's, it's a, we're building and you know, you've, you've reflected that you've expanded upon your own research and you've changed your ideas and we're all part of, of a process um, moving towards, you know, whatever perfection, let's say it. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Tim. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks so much for that interview, Chris. Very interesting, especially like those interviews where we break down the apparent obviousness of, you know, terms like liberalism, solidarity, modernity, and of course, religion, yeah. which we do in some form most weeks. <laughs> most weeks. Yeah, and, and he had an excellent um, uh, conceptualization of, of myth. Uh, which we haven't really discussed too much on the RSP as a, as a concept, um, and how that we as scholars can potentially use um, myth um, in normative ways. So you know, like I did push him towards the end of the interview on sort of the normative arguments that he's making in the book, but I think um, he presented quite a good defence of that. And um, you may also be interested in our previous interviews. Um, on um, Habermas, Religion of the Post-Secular, uh, on uh, the, the Sacred, and that was one with Gordon Lynch that mm -hmm. um, Jonathan Tuckett recorded back in our first year, and also um, the, the Post-Secular, um, one of those ones that I recorded with um, Kevin Gray, I think back in 2014 when I was in Belfast. And I should flag up that um, Tim also has a project um, called the Lived Religions Project that he's running with uh, Fernand Poole, um, where they um, basically sit down with folks from all over the uh, the religion-related spectrum and just get them to, to tell their, their story. So um, you can go to livedreligionproject.com and uh, check out some of those recordings. There are some excellent um, data sort of blurring those boundaries around our... How individuals play the language game of... Uh, of religion in the contemporary discursive field. Exactly. Um, yeah. Talking of fields. Yeah. <laughs> it almost works. Yeah. Uh, next week, I'm interviewing Owen Coggins on drone metal mysticism. See, because it, it's like a, an open air concert, so it's, okay. it's in a field. Well, yeah, as long as it's a fairly large scale drone metal event. Indeed. Um, a really interesting interview, an interview we've been wanting to record for a while. I'm really glad. Yeah. Um, he's a, a really nice chap, and it's a great conversation. Um, 
So talking partly about the way that religion and religious imagery is engaged with in the metal field, and the drone metal field in particular. But towards the end, we go into talking about um, uh, relating it to ideas of mysticism and uh, Michael Deserto's work on mysticism. So it's a very interesting conversation, quite wide-ranging. But um, do come back and listen to that if you're interested in pop culture, religion at all. Wonderful. Um, well, I'm usually I'm just going to say that the thing. That we say. Well, no, because there's one more thing that we have to say. We were uh, the other thing that we've done recently is we've had a new issue of Implicit Religion um, has just come out. We, we have been slightly behind on publication due to a lot of different reasons. Yeah, but we're largely, catching up, man. We're catching up. The, the the last few are coming out in quick succession, um, but we basically have had to completely overhaul the way that the a journal worked, so you know, getting proper peer reviews takes a while. Um, but uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this issue, and um, starting to show the direction we're going to take the the journal in, in a critical direction, and you know, closely tied to religious studies project yeah. aims and positions. And it features, um, I believe, our uh, social media manager, Ray Radford, is in it there. It does, on um, talking about Sirens of Titan, um, Ray Bradbury, science fiction novel, and uh, Tenzin Eagle's um, review essay on, on philosophy, um, mm-hmm. 20th century philosophy, I think it's a very interesting piece, very good piece, that. Um, so yeah, um, plenty to check out. There's also one... Um, Birgit Marburg talking about uh, the use of Christmas in secular contexts um, and, and several others. So, so do check that out. Wonderful. Well, uh, I will now say um, what I was planning to say earlier before I forgot about implicit religion, and that's <laughs> thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.